Welcome to the Arts and Minds podcast from Dominican University. I'm Leslie Rodriguez. Located in River Forest, Illinois, in 2020, U.S. News and World Report ranked Dominican University at number 10 among Midwest regional universities and number one for best value in Chicagoland. At the heart of the university is its Catholic Dominican tradition, grounded in the compatibility of reason and faith. The programs of the Live Arts and Minds series presented on campus each year are curated to reflect that tradition and build on the university mission to participate in the creation of a more just and humane world. Today's episode is part three in a four-part series delving into the recently published book, Preaching With Their Lives. Co-sponsored by Dominican University's McGreal Center for Dominican Historical Studies and St. Catherine of Siena Center, the event was presented via Zoom on April 8, 2021, and explores the chapter, Walking in Solidarity, Dominican Women and the Struggle for Economic Justice in the Modern United States with contributing author, Dr. Heath Carter. Good evening, and welcome to Dominican University. My name is Rachel Hartwinner, and it is my privilege to direct the St. Catherine of Siena Center. I am so happy to welcome you all here virtually on this special evening. It's our annual St. Catherine of Siena lecture, and it's our first ever virtual St. Catherine Lecture. This evening's lecture is co-presented with the Sister Mary Nona McGreal Center for Dominican Historical Studies. In a moment, I will introduce you to the director of that center, Dr. Christopher Allison, and he has the honor of welcoming our distinguished guest, Dr. Heath Carter. This evening, we will hear from Dr. Carter, and then we will engage in conversation with Dr. Allison. I welcome you to submit questions in the Q&A box throughout the evening that we will share with Dr. Carter and Dr. Allison. First, a brief moment of contextual reflection as we honor our patroness, St. Catherine. This past year, many of our events at the Siena Center have examined the impact of the pandemic on our lives. And we have often looked to St. Catherine in a new light. She lived through the bubonic plague And many would say her immense love of God, of neighbor, and of our world was indeed expanded by the suffering she lived with and sought to heal every day. Catherine embodied a prophetic and active stance toward reconciliation, reform, and the creation of a more just and humane world. And as we mark over a year of living with the COVID-19 pandemic, we might look to St. Catherine with new eyes, more aware of the suffering and death she witnessed, yet also the joy and the hope that she shared daily with those around her. Her life calls us to look at history with acute attention to those on the margins and those that are often the very face of God. So it is quite fitting this evening that we honor history And now I am happy to introduce my colleague here at Dominican, Dr. Christopher Allison. 
He is the director of the McGreal Center and teaches American history in the history department here. He has a book under contract with the University of Chicago Press on material culture and religion in early America. And he has published many essays in books and journals about early American religious history. Prior to Dominican, Dr. Allison was a Harper and Schmidt Fellow at the Society of Fellows at the University of Chicago. There he taught as Collegiate Assistant Professor of the Humanities. He received his graduate degrees from Harvard and Yale and studied and worked in secondary history education as an undergraduate at Olivet Nazarene University. His work is largely focused on American religious history before the Civil War, focusing on topics such as Catholic-Protestant relations, material culture, African-American history, women's history, and the history of reform movements. So now I turn it over to you, Chris. Thank you. So thank you everyone for being here tonight. Warm welcome from the Greel Center for another one of our book talks. There's been a series of talks where we've tried to highlight some of the, the new scholarship that's come out in our new book, Preaching With Their Lives. And we are really pr privileged to have Heath Carter here tonight from Princeton Theological Seminary who is a friend of many of us here at Dominican. And so it's been a really a joy to have him here and to talk about his chapter in our new Preaching With Their Lives book. He will say more about this in, in a second. We also have another event coming up on April 15th, which is with Maggie McGinnis, who um, is an eminent scholar of uh, the history of women religious in the United States. And she's going to really talk about Dominicans and disease, which is obviously a very kind of important topic right now, as you, as you can imagine, as we're all thinking about disease and the way it disrupts our lives. So tonight's going to really go, I, I will introduce Heath in a second, um, but tonight's really going to go in thirds. We will have Heath kind of introduce his chapter. I know a lot of people on the call have not read the chapter and that's fine, um, but we will kind of want to inspire you to read it. And then after um, he kind of introduces his chapter and what he wrote, he and I will have a conversation a little bit, and then we'll open up to actually the crowd to have uh, questions and answers and to engage with, with the great work that he's done. So that's how the preview for tonight. I guess I will turn to introducing Heath, um, someone I've known for a while, and many of us have known for a while, and I'm really pleased to have him here. Heath Carter is a associate professor really recently at Princeton Theological Seminary. He taught at, Val at Valparaiso University with many of my other friends for many years. And he really teaches and writes about the intersection of Christianity and American public life. And he's the author of Union Made, Working People and the Rise of Social Christianity in Chicago, which is was published by um, Oxford University Press in 2015. And it was the runner up for the Brewer Prize uh, for the American Society of Church History. And then also um, he's been editing many works and many of which that I've read and, and appreciated the Pew and the Picket line, Christianity in the American Working Class by U of I Press in 2016, uh, Turning Points in American in the History of American Evangelicalism by Erdmans in 2017, and the Documentary History of, of Religion in America, um, which is kind of adding on to a very distinguished text that has been used by many people like me in the classroom by Erdmans in 2018. And so now he's working on I know he's on sabbatical. Um, he's gracious enough to uh, leave sabbatical to talk to us. And his new book is On Earth As It Is in Heaven, uh, Social Christians in the Fight to End American Inequality. 
which is also going to come out with OUP. Who knows the date? As we, we <laughs> know, right. work, uh, as I know intimately, but he's. I think also importantly, he's also the co-editor of the of a really distinguished series um, by William B. Erdman's publishing company of a library of religious bi biography series, which has really created some really stellar and eminent bi biographies of various figures from American religious history. So we're really glad to have you here, Heath, and I'll just hand it over to you to kind of introduce the research you did for our book, and, uh, and we're really thankful to have you. So great. Welcome. Well, hey, thank you so much, uh, Chris, and thanks to the Siena Center and McGreal Center, and especially to, to Rachel Hartwinner and Chris Allison for hosting this conversation and gathering uh, an audience to think together about, I think, an important topic tonight, sort of Catholicism, American Catholicism and economic justice in the modern United States. I did spend, I spent 16 years in Chicagoland and, and have a lot of great friends at Dominican. And so it is great to be with you all, even just digitally this evening. You know, it's quite a time to be thinking about economic justice in the modern United States. As both Rachel and Chris mentioned, we're living through a global pandemic. We're living at a moment of historic inequality, um, in part exacerbated by that pandemic. So the fascinating moment to think about the role of American Catholicism in this in this moment, given that we now have a, a Catholic president who has very strong pro-labor credentials, who just a few weeks ago, amid a momentous unionizing drive at an Amazon distribution facility in Bessemer, Alabama, sent out a video touting the importance of labor and the rights of workers to organize. So it's a, an interesting moment to think about where does some where does a, a video like that come from? What's the longer history of American Catholics wrestling with the labor movement and with questions of the distribution of wealth and workers' rights and whatnot. So I'm, I'm really happy to be with you tonight and think a little bit in particular about Dominican women's role in that story. And um, in particular, uh, the work and the witness of, of a sister, Vincent Ferrer, who I came to know through the research I did for the chapter I wrote in this book, and who uh, really came to appreciate and admire, and I hope that if you have a chance to read about her, you you might as well. So um, I'll get a little bit of the particulars of her story in case you haven't had a chance to read. Uh, but before I do, I want to just make a, a, a couple more general remarks about why does someone like uh, Sister, Sister Vincent Ferrer matter for those who may not know about her or about the role of Dominican women in, in this story. Why, why might they pay attention? You know, in recent years, there's been a lot of work done by historians around the intersection of Christianity and capitalism in the modern United States. Really tremendous books uh, looking at kind of the, the rise and fall of the welfare state, looking at the emergence in the post-war period of a gospel of free enterprise, historians have called it. And with, with some important exceptions, I would say that that body of literature has really been quite focused on the role of evangelical clergy in the story. It's been focused on the role of evangelical businessmen in the story. There's been a little bit of work on, on Catholics, but there's certainly a lot more work to be done thinking about the kind of really key roles that American Catholics have played in the sort of story of, of economic development, the story of the rise and fall of the welfare state in the modern United States, and more. So I think, you know, Sister Vincent Ferrer is one window into kind of a Catholic side to this really important story, whether you care about, you know, the religious piece of it more, or the economic piece, this intersection, I think, is, is really quite momentous. 
And Catholics have had a, a, a noted role in it from the very beginning. You know, we, we'll talk a little bit uh, later tonight, maybe about you know, the role of Catholic social teaching, starting with the rise of, of kind of the encyclical tradition and teachings on labor going all the way back to 1891 in Rerum Novarum. Obviously, the significant role that Catholics played both at the grassroots level and at the level of the hierarchy in terms of powering the New Deal and the emergence of a really strong labor movement in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. I also think there's a lot more to be said about sort of the Catholic role in the decline of the labor movement. After the, the Second World War, as, as Catholics moved out of cities and moved into the middle class, and probably a lot more to explore there. Sister Vincent Ferrer offers a kind of window into a lot of these different currents. And so she matters, I think, in that sense. But she also matters in another sense. I'm a, I'm a historian that has interests in not just sort of political and intellectual developments, but also in social history, which is a sort of fancy category that historians use to talk about the stories of everyday people and the stories of everyday lives. And, you know, I think Sister Vincent Ferrer is really important for thinking about how does Catholic social teaching develop at the grassroots level? You know, many of you are probably familiar with this encyclical tradition that starts with Rerum Novarum in 1891 and that continually sort of has developed over the course of the last century plus. These are documents that have come out of the Vatican, promulgated by the Vatican, and that have obviously been importantly shaped by high ups in sort of churchly circles. But sort of the question of where those documents come from and then how do they sort of come to life or you know when when and if they do come to life on the ground that's another sort of question altogether so you know you think about a, a document like rerum novarum didn't just materialize out of nowhere it came out of in part it was a response to the movements that workers built in Europe and in the United States many of them catholic workers who had a sense that their faith was what was propelling them into the labor movement and, and in, you know, at the Vatican and, and across the United States and Europe, you have church officials really thinking about how to respond to this movement. And so a document like Raven of Arm really comes out of, in part, as a response to things happening on the ground. But then there's a question of once you get a document like Raven of Arm or any of the later encyclicals, how do people find out about it? How do people come to understand what it means? How do people come to understand why it matters? You know, documents like that can come into an academic's office and sit on a shelf. And that's one thing, um, you know, and theoreticians may care. But if it's going to matter for the church, if it's going to matter for the world at a greater level, it has to kind of matter for the people. And that's where I think there's a really interesting story to be told about the role of people like Sister Vincent Ferrer in bringing Catholic teaching on labor to life among the people. So as I started to dive into this chapter, I found I was actually really surprised to, to discover the sort of just how significant a role she did play in kind of the heyday of Catholic New Deal sort of labor mobilization. And as it turned out, as I got into the research, I, I discovered that I wasn't the only one that was surprised by her, her role. In fact, many of the people as she she, you know, she was she became a national figure in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. And as she traveled the country, she was often told by some of the folks that she spoke to that they were surprised that a Dominican sister like her would know as much as she so clearly did about these sort of big and often sort of uh, traditionally masculine questions of politics and economics and that she would be way, sort of weighing in and wading into these contemporary kind of contentious political and economic debates. 
1940, Sister Vincent, and I'll come back and, and tell you a little bit about sort of how she got to be this person in a moment, but just to sort of kick off with a little bit of a sense of what a remarkable figure she was. In 1940, she was invited to speak at Whole House in Chicago, this kind of famed institution uh, in the world of social welfare and social thought. And the person, the woman who invited her uh, in the course of, of extending the invitation said that she conveyed this. She said, quote, most of the group could hardly believe that a nun could have such everyday comprehensive understanding of the world in which men and women struggle against problems beyond their ability to cope with. A couple of years later, Sister Vincent was invited to speak at a national conference. It was called the Industrial Relations Institute for Christian Leaders. And at that conference, after she spoke, she was approached by an Episcopal priest who came up to her and she said, he said uh, to her, sister, you have us puzzled. Just who are you? So that was the question that I sort of came to as I was getting into the research for this paper. Who was Sister Vincent Ferrer? She was born uh, Anne Helen Bradford in Madison, Wisconsin, and she earned her BA at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, she entered the Dominicans in 1912, and a couple of years later, she took the name Sister Vincent Ferrer in 1914, the very same year that she professed her vows. As she, as she did, she professed her vows, she came into a community at Cincinnati that was already engaged in questions around labor upheaval. In fact, the community at Cincinnati had actually been engaged in those questions even before Rerum Novarum was promulgated in 1891. And I think that's, again, to the point of where does a document like Rerum Novarum come from? It's, it's, it comes by way of response to things that are already happening. Five sisters, Cincinnati sisters, who were, had been working at a, actually at a school in Spring Valley, Illinois, when in the, uh, 1889, a massive miners strike broke out in that community and disrupted the life of it. The sisters were teaching in schools, they were teaching children who would come into their classrooms and would show signs of the significant distress that the strike was imposing on working class families. And so the sisters uh, poured themselves into relief efforts, efforts to raise aid for those families that had been affected by the strike. And they volunteered as nurses in the community too. Back at the mound, Cincinnati Dominicans, Mother General, Sister Emily Power, hearing the stories of these sisters on sort of right on the ground in the middle of this big labor disruption. She developed uh, back at the mound a really strong sympathy for the plight of these workers. So while many Catholic leaders in the United States, bishops and, and priests were emphasizing, you know, after Raymond Navarro was promulgated, for a generation really, most of the kind of male hierarchy in the United States emphasized the anti-socialist provisions of that encyclical, which were significant. But at the mound already, there was a kind of early history of emphasizing the other side of the encyclical, which was a support for workers and a desire to kind of meet workers in their needs. So that was the community that Sister Vincent Frere came into. She went on to get an MA in history at Catholic University and came back and became a stalwart of the economics and political science departments at Rosary College, which in 1997 became a Dominican University. In 1922, so just to give you a sense of kind of what's going on around her as she's kind of coming into her own as a new faculty member at Rosary College. In 1922, uh, the National Catholic Welfare Conference, which was a kind of Catholic organization that was thinking about the kind of full scope of the gospel, what it has to say to the world and how to mobilize the church around not just kind of the spiritual needs of parishioners, but also how to respond to the many, many industrial crises of the day. 
1922, the same year that Rosary moved to River Forest, that, that National Catholic Welfare Conference founded a, a new initiative called the Catholic Conference on Industrial Problems. And the idea with this was partly just to spread the kind of gospel of Catholic social teaching, to find ways to raise awareness about the church's position on the labor question, which was a, a kind of riveting, captivating issue for the American public, including many Catholics of the day. What was remarkable as I sort of sort of got into the research about Sister Vincent was that she really became a key figure in this organization, in the Catholic Conference on Industrial Problems, well before women, forget about you know, Catholic women, but just women in general were being recognized as experts on political and economic questions. She was a nationally recognized expert when it came to Catholic economic thought. And, and you can know this because in the 1930s and 1940s, as this organization is sort of in its heyday, and this is, these are, again, these are the years of the Great Depression, these are the years of the New Deal, years in which Catholics are really playing prominent roles in helping Americans to think about how to respond to kind of these massive inequality, but also kind of the, the emergency of the Great Depression. During those years, Ferrer was traveling all over the country. So she has this teaching position at Rosary College, but she's, she spoke at more than a dozen conferences, everywhere from uh, Indianapolis and Chicago, Dubuque, Iowa, Detroit, Hartford, St. Louis, Atlanta, Columbus, Ohio, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Kansas City, San Francisco, Cincinnati, San Antonio, Toledo, and even Butte, Montana. She spoke at national gatherings of, of uh, Catholic folks thinking about these kind of economic questions in Milwaukee and in Cleveland. And she did this at a moment where you know, Catholic activists, folks who really cared about the labor movement, really felt like it was their moment partly because of the Great Depression and, and the opportunities that were created by the Great Depression and the Roosevelt administration's openness to labor, but also because in 1931, uh, the Vatican promulgated a new encyclical, Quadragesimo Anno, which was on the 40th anniversary of Rerum Novarum. And a lot of folks who had been involved in this work in the 19-teens and 1920s felt that finally here the Vatican was coming behind them and affirming the kind of work that they were doing. And since Sister Vincent was one of the people who really made the most of it, and, and as she's traveling the country and, and trying to raise awareness about what exactly the church has to say about the economic crisis of her day. She later reflected, my participation made it possible for me to hear all of the talks, take part in the discussion and meet some of the outstand, outstanding men of the country. So as, as I was doing this research, I found you know, pictures of Sister Vincent Ferreri. One of them is actually included in the book, standing around with uh, governors, standing around with Bishop standing with John Ryan, who's the sort of much more famous interpreter of, of Catholic social teaching during this era. She, uh, she was quoted in many of these, these newspaper articles. That's where I got some of the material for the, for the chapter. She was quoted after remarks in San Antonio as saying, quote, many of our leaders are aware of the danger which Hitler's world revolution presents to Christian civilization, but seem not at all conscious of the more insidious menace that modern capitalism has constituted for all spiritual values. What did she think the answer was? She said, for each one of us, the task is clear. Make ourselves Christian, thoroughly Christian. At Atlanta, she would go on to say, quote, economic life must be inspired with Christian principles. So for, for Ferrer, really at the heart of it was this idea. She was in, engaged in this conversation, which was an important conversation in her day. It remains an important conversation in our day. It was really a debate in part about does something like, quote unquote, the market operate by kind of quasi scientific laws and principles 
that mean that it's somehow uh, apart from the gospel, apart from kind of ethical Christian reflection and, and Christian critique. She rejected that idea altogether. She said, no, the, the market, economic development, economic life is fully under the, the rubric of the gospel, fully under the rubric of what the church has to say, what Christian teaching has to say about economic questions. She said at one point in her view that Rerum Novarum had, quote, settled once and for all that it is not only the right, but the duty of the church to speak with authority on social and economic problems. And she contrasted that with what she called, quote, the essentially pagan doctrine, that the church should have nothing to say about business, that bishops and priests should preach the gospel and let industrial questions be discussed by parties concerned. So she really saw a robust role for uh, Catholic social teaching in kind of the modern United States. And she brought that partly through these conferences, but also, and this was one of the more fascinating things that I, I ran across, and this was in the archive in, in DC at Catholic University, where they had the papers of the National Catholic Welfare Conference. Sister Vincent was one of the key figures in this thing called the Institute on Industry, which was hosted in DC, and it was a program for women workers from the late 1930s through the early 1950s. And again, this is part of this theme that I see in her life and, and the importance of her work, bringing Catholic social teaching to life on the ground, partly through giving you know, lectures around the country, partly through spending uh, a few weeks every summer with women workers from around the country. And she said, quote, there were factory workers, laundry workers, hat and bag makers, and telephone operators. Girls from the, the Aero Shirt Factory came for three or four summers. Two, two Pittsburgh girls were from the Catholic Radical Alliance, an outgrowth of the Catholic worker movement. So you just have this image of kind of women uh, workers coming from around the country to kind of literally sort of learn Catholic social teaching and to kind of imbibe it. And, and it, was a, it was something where she was partly, you know, obviously the expert on the matter, but she was also astounded at the ways in which the women um, learned from one another. She, would, she recalled that during one 1941 seminar, one of the women who had come for this institute confessed that she didn't believe in unions. And Sister Vincent sort of looked on as many of these other women, she would later recall, she said, they sort of started sort of sharing their own testimony with this, this uh, woman who didn't believe in unions about why they were so important. Ferrer said, and this is a quote, to their credit, it must be said, they knew not only their unions, but they knew their encyclicals. So her sense that, you know, the, these teachings were really coming to life through what she was doing. Meanwhile, and this is probably what sort of, astounds, sort of astounded me about her, was she was doing so much. She was speaking at these conferences. She was teaching at this institute in the summers. Meanwhile, she was obviously, she was a faculty member at Rosary College. She was teaching uh, Christian sort of education classes across the Chicago metropolitan area. She was invited to teach at uh, Auxiliary Bishop Bernard Shields School of Social Studies, when it opened in 1943, and the very next year, he recognized her with the Leo XIII Award for Outstanding Work in Christian Social Education. So again, even in her day, she was noted for sort of her mastery, her acumen, her ability to kind of be an authority on these issues. At the end of her life, I think Sister Vincent felt a real sense of accomplishment. This is one of the sentences from the, some, some sort of memoirs that she didn't publish, but that she wrote. She said, quote, between the date of Quadragesimo Anno and our time, we have passed through an economic and social revolution. The majority of workers by means of organizations of their own choosing began to secure their rights. In this year of 1969, efforts are being made to extend these same rights to migratory farm workers. And she was thinking about what Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta were doing out West in California. 
you know, part of what's so amazing about her is, you know, she was an early advocate for women's involvement in kind of the traditionally masculine world of politics and economics. She believed, quote, it's the duty of all women to be concerned with the social problems of the day. Whether a woman is a nun, a mother, a businesswoman, or a newspaper reporter, she should study the problems of the day. And that was the passion that drove her work at Rosary, that drove the lectures that she gave, that drove the work at the Institute and at the Shield School. And obviously we know sort of the rest of the story, right? That in the wake of, of the 1960s, this view became much more common among women religious. It became much more common in society writ large. And so I end this chapter in terms of thinking about why does she matter with sort of some reflections on some more contemporary examples of Dominican women who have gotten involved in struggles for economic justice. And I won't dwell too long. I want to kind of move to the next part of our evening, but two really compelling stories. I mean, just very briefly, one, uh, the Grand Rapids uh, Dominican sisters who in the last uh, 20 years or so have implemented a living wage on their campus. And I, I had a chance to go and speak with them and, and to talk about how difficult that was, both the process of getting it through, you know, just really a moving conversation. I'll never forget it. Talking to Sister Ann Walters and Sister Barbara Hansen about kind of their vision. They believed it. They believed that they were called to have a, to pay a living wage on their campus, but then how to make it happen and the struggles that they went through. And I was there with them and with uh, Carol Nugent, who was the kind of CFO for the campus. And, you know, not, not a sister. She was a lay person who had spent most of her earlier life in the corporate world. And these two sisters come to her and she, they say, we want to implement a living wage across our campus. And she looked at them and she said, what? <laughs> she didn't get it. And she talked, you know, Carol Nugent, this, this, uh, the CFO, she talked very movingly about the ways in which these sisters that she was surrounded by brought Catholic social teaching to life for her. And in which she really talked about it almost as like a conversion experience that she had been a Catholic. She had, she had, you know, maybe some vague idea of this, but had never thought about what it would look like to actually implement it on the ground. So in the chapter, I talk a little bit about some of the struggles. I mean, it's really hard. What is a living wage? How do you implement it? What are the issues that come up when the people at the bottom are suddenly getting paid really close to the people at the top? What does it mean when there's a financial crunch in a community and, and it becomes really difficult to sustain that? And I think when I left them, I was there maybe five years ago, you know, there was a real question, can we still do this? But they, they really hope to be able to do it. And then the last story is about a sister at, at Adrian who got involved with labor organizing and some of the you know, the, the real challenges that come together, especially when you're trying to organize, for example, hospitals that are uh, run by your congregation. And what does that look like? And how do you navigate that? And, and again, that struggle to, to take these documents, these encyclicals that exist somehow out there as these sort of theoretical statements, and to bring them to life in the world. But part of the argument of the chapter as a whole, and, and part of what I, I hope those who have a chance to read it will see, is that Dominican women have played a really key role in that process of taking abstract theoretical documents and understanding them so well as Sister Vincent did, but also then uh, bringing them to life among the people and having them be more than just statements, but actually kind of a guide for how to live together in the world. So I'll stop there, Chris, and then we can we can talk for a little bit and, and I'm happy to take any questions that people have. That's that's great. Thanks for thanks for sharing all that. And you know, I think you're right. I mean, it's it's uh, it's also part of the legacy here at Dominican University is as we think about social justice. That really what what we point to is the is a long history of sisters who insisted upon this kind of work and trying to put Catholic social teaching like on the ground as best they can, helping 
kids, you know, pay for college, helping them mm-hmm. finish their classes, uh, making sure they have enough to eat. Like they, they were very serious about that. And I think that's a great legacy that we, we inherit from them here. So I think that's, that's really helpful. Well, I, I could ask you a kind of like a historian question, but I probably will skip that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I also was trained around a lot of history of capitalism people. Mm-hmm. And I, I've one, I'll just say this parenthetically, you don't have to say anything about it if you don't want to. But one of the quotes you have is like, the, the new history of capitalism has a blind spot the size of the Catholic Church. Mm. And that is so true. And, and I, could, I couldn't amplify that more. And I know that's more historian type thing. Mm. But I think that is one thing about the way that we've tried to tell the story of American capitalism has been um, not only like tone deaf to religion, but also really completely absent in terms of Catholicism. So I think that's been really, really helpful for contributing this article. And I hope historians of capitalism read it and I will try (laughs) (laughs) as much as I can. But I did want to talk a little bit about with you for a few minutes before you open up to the the, um, bigger crew. Let's let's talk about Joe Biden a little bit. Yeah. I think Joe Biden's a guy who has a rosary in his pocket. Mm. He he directly assigns his sense of empathy for people to his own tragedy. Mm. So there's a certain kind of like theology of Catholic suffering mm. that he's directly pointing to. We could we could talk about him as a Catholic in general, but also I think specifically, how do you see in the in the present of his own current policy? the influences of Catholic social teaching in his own kind of work? Well, I think uh, I mentioned, and if you haven't had a chance, those who are who are on with us, to watch the video that he put out a few weeks ago about, I don't think he actually mentions the the particular union drive that is wrapping up right now. I don't, I'm, I haven't seen today that we're expecting the kind of the, the vote totals any day now. He doesn't mention that drive in particular, but he, he was, I think the, the video that he put out basically was a, a very clear statement of the importance of the labor movement, which is something that, you know, I'm, I am broadly interested in kind of Christian social teaching and, and both the theoretical tradition, but then also how it actually plays out on the ground. And part of what I know, I mean, is that by the early 20th century, most major Christian churches had pro-labor statements on the books. And so those statements are still on the books in most every case. But we live in a moment where fewer than 7% of private sector workers are unionized today. And so, I mean, as a Christian myself, as a historian who's interested in these questions, I think about what's going on there. Well, there's a new Pew study that, you know, the the affiliation numbers are are maybe even dropping faster than we thought. But, you know, the last big study that I saw, 70% or so of Americans are still affiliated with some kind of Christian church. Most of those churches have pro-labor statements, and yet the, the labor movement is so beleaguered at the moment. And so when that video came out a few weeks ago and Biden was very clearly sort of speaking, you know, he wasn't trying to intervene per se in the particulars of this debate, but he was saying, you know, there's a, there's the labor movement's important. I believe in the labor movement, and I believe especially in the work, the rights of workers to organize without impediment. You know, a lot of people said that that was a kind of historic video just in general to have an American president get out and make a kind of supportive statement about the labor movement. It's been a long time since you've seen anything like that. And, you know, it, it's also a, a significant statement, I think, in terms of thinking about American Catholicism. I mean, I, I sort of alluded to it at the beginning of my talk, but my sense is that we have a lot more to do, and to your comment just a moment ago, Chris, um, in thinking about sort of the, the Catholic role in the rise of American conservatism in the last generation and or two generations. And, uh, 
that's been a very evangelical story as the we as we've told it. But um, Catholics, you know, it's the single largest church in the United States, and certainly white Catholics have been a, a huge component of kind of the the resurgent Republican Party slash conservative movement more broadly. So, I mean, part of what's interesting about Biden, in my view, are the ways in which, you know, he's sort of a throwback to an earlier moment, maybe, in sort of Catholic public witness, where there's more of an emphasis on questions around poverty, questions around labor um, than there has been in recent years. And I think, I mean, one of the open questions that will be sort of remains to be seen, but it'll be interesting to see is to what extent that is something that sort of catches on or becomes part of, of things moving forward. That's not something that as a historian, I, I feel like I'm way, you know competent to weigh in on, but it's certainly interesting. You know, you look at someone like him in the, in the Catholic church, you look at someone like William Barber, who's played a big role in organizing efforts also in, in some similar ways, drawing a kind of a throwback to an earlier moment of trying to think about the intersection of race and class and thinking about kind of the issues facing working people, ordinary people, poor people in the United States, to the extent to which that catches on and becomes sort of a big emphasis. I mean, that could be a really significant legacy for Biden, religiously, politically alike. I think that, that there is an open question, you know, a generation or two after Sister Vincent passed away, to what extent do people know their encyclicals today? To what extent do people really have a sense of these teachings? To what extent are they just somewhere collecting dust on a shelf? I talked to a Catholic clergyman, I don't know, five or six years ago, who was saying, I was talking about you know, the importance of this tradition of teaching around labor and whatnot. And, and he said to me, well, I'm trying to get my people to know the gospels. And, you know, I, I want them to know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, you know, at some point we'll get to Rerum Navarum, but I don't know where or when. And so it's part of a larger question around kind of Christian formation and to what extent these teachings, like all teachings, are only as good as they are alive in among people. And so I think, you know, if maybe Biden can, can help to kind of bring more attention to them. I don't know. That'd be, that would be a fascinating thing to kind of track as we, as we move forward. Yeah. No, one thing too, I think, um, in terms of what you were just saying about the kind of uh, Christian education, you know, when, as, as much as I know about Mother Emily Power, one of the things she kind of really pressed into the sisters was the sense of, you don't really study, but you need to be good at the study that you do. Yeah. And I think you see this in Sister Vincent Ferrer. I mean, she, she kind of takes that and runs with it. One of the themes of your chapter is like the surprise that she is all the time. Yeah. But part of Rise is coming from a Dominican charism that someone's really trying to live out. Like you need to do the work. You need to go and study and do it. And I find that very inspiring in, in a lot of different ways. But I think there, there is some element here of scholarship that I, I don't know if you want to say anything about that, but I, I that really popped for me because I think that was, um, as I direct this center, I think about Dominican traditions and how they manifest themselves on the ground as you're thinking about the encyclicals, how they manifest yes. themselves on the ground. And, and I think this chapter is a really great example of the way that that charism has been made into flesh. Yes. This sister who was all around the country, like serious about labor issues, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think that's, I mean, I think that is where, at a moment where, again, it wasn't very common for women to be public intellectuals. I mean, she really was a kind of public intellectual, certainly in her own in her work, her passion was, I mean, she knew her stuff. She had done the work. She was a scholar. She was a teacher. She was an academic, but she wasn't content to kind of live out her vocation only in the academy. 
And that's what, I mean, she just was always on the move. And, and I think that's part of what I found so interesting. And again, not just at these kind of, you know, she was at the, all the conferences with all the big wigs kind of thinking about things and policymakers and whatnot. But I, I also just love the the institute that she ran in DC every summer. And she was so committed to that. Um, there was one year where it was actually hosted at Rosary and she was unable to make it. She had a, she had a conflict with the dates and Lena Brissett, who was organizing it, wrote to um, her superior and said, I just can't believe that Sister Vincent will be there because she is the heart and soul of this program. And so for her, she did. She had a, she had a passion for bringing the things that she knew to a broader audience. And I think really for, for the church and for the world. And she, she saw, you know, the, the more that people knew these teachings, the more that they got out. Again, she was interested in kind of the, the theoretical conversation. She knew her stuff there, but she wasn't content to sort of just dabble there. She wanted to be out in the world and she did it. And she did it again, as you were alluding to, you know, to the surprise of men, especially everywhere she went. So just a remarkable, a remarkable story. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. And, and I, and I, and I think she like, you know, uh, another cool thing about her is how, I think that is also part of her order, like her position in the order is to be out into the world. Like it's not enough to be in the ivory tower. Uh, we, we need to actually be spreading this out into the world as the third order of, of St. Dominic. And so I think we see that in her life. Yeah. She was following what was being given to her. So Let's let's talk about Francis for really quickly before we turn it over to the crowd. We talked about Joe Biden a little bit. Pope Francis has also a pretty pro-labor position. Mm-hmm. Comes from Latin America, which has a lot of influence of Dominicans for sure, especially in terms of liberation theology. Mm-hmm. How do you see the influence of, of the Vatican in current labor things? Actually, maybe beside, outside of the United States. I think Joe Biden's probably the most influential in, mm-hmm. within our own country, but also kind of broadly, um, do you think the labor movement has had a jolt of energy because of Pope Francis? Well, yeah. certainly, certainly when, when he became the Pope, there was a, certainly a lot of hope. And I think that so much of that's been borne out. I think you've seen in Francis around these particular questions, especially someone who, again, has been responsive to things that are happening on the ground around the world and, and really thinking very keenly about kind of modern inequality, including labor inequality. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's been a big deal. The, the thing that is interesting about this particular piece is there is a relatively consistent witness through kind of different sorts of popes through the years, um, popes that are considered more conservative, popes that are considered more progressive. If you look at their teaching around these kinds of labor questions, worker worker questions, there is a, a real kind of consistency that sometimes I think we miss, you know, in the, in the conversation. And, and so I do think Francis has energized folks and I think been attentive to dynamics, um, certainly been more interested in sort of liberation theology and whatnot than some of his predecessors. But there, there, you know, even if you go look at uh, the thought of Pope John Paul II or of, of Pope Benedict, you'll find they say a lot of things that I think Sister, you know, Vincent would have been really happy to see them say. And so, you know, the, the, the developments in the United States, you know, and the kind of decline of Catholic social teaching at the grassroots in some ways in the United States, I don't know if it's you know, again, I don't know that the best way to account for that is by what's been happening at the Vatican. I think it's more particular to things that are going on, kind of social and economic currents in our own national life. Yeah, thank you. So this is a question from the audience. Do any of our Catholic bishops spread social teachings? They all seem to be assessed with their own political agendas. The person who's, who's saying this, I was, I was a 40s rosary student. We knew these teachings, even science majors, we knew about Catholic social teaching. 
I think the question is like a little bit about formation. You know, I teach a senior seminar on the good life. I don't know how much I really talk explicitly about Catholic social teaching, even though I kind of believe in it. <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. I don't know if I'm, you know, equipped to, to sort of go down the list and say, you know, if any bishops do per se. I mean, I, I think you do find bishops who are talking about these encyclicals. I know the Archbishop of Chicago, when he was first installed, he he spoke about right to work laws and whatnot and, and, and spoke out against those laws in particular. You know, it hasn't been as much of an emphasis. And I think that is, again, part of what's so interesting about this moment. You know, I think in the last 10 years or so, you've had a heightened focus on economic inequality. Certainly the 08 crash did that. Certainly the pandemic is once again doing that. Um, but that came on the heels of a generation where questions about economic inequality were not seen as the big questions. It's interesting that that's the case, given that, you know, during that previous generation is when that inequality really, you know, started to be generated. But again, I think that you'll find that the story about the gospel of free enterprise that emerged in the post-war United States, that story has major Catholic components to it that we haven't fully explored. So um, I think that's part of it. I think also that, you know, that it's certainly true, you know, the fellow that I talked to a few years back and who said, I'm trying to get my, my flock to know the, you know, the gospels and I can't get into Raymond of Arum. You know, he, he was, I think, struggling with just, you know, many of the things that Catholic leaders in the United States are struggling with parishes that are shrinking with consolidation with the, you know, there's lots of other things that are pulling on people's attention. This is one issue that I think deserves uh, more attention. And I think it's starting to get it though. You know, again, I think, I think the, the current president is someone who through his work may be able to draw even more attention to the fact that there is a strong tradition here, whether it's kind of brought into the focus in the way that it has been in the past and the way that it certainly was, you know, in the, in the, in the heyday of the new deal, I don't know. I think that, that remains to be seen. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good answer. I think you're so right. Ed, that there's so many distracting bigger issues that sometimes we cannot, we can miss the, you know, other teaching that's, that's happening in the church. Okay. So another question from the crowd. So what are some of the lessons that we should learn about preaching with our lives from Dominican women, especially when we're called to challenge conformity with prevailing paradigms in justice work? Mm. Um, that's good friend, John. Well, uh, you know, she's a fascinating example. I mean, as as John says in the question of someone who did kind of flout all the expectations, certainly the expectations of people within the church, the expectations of people outside of the church, people were not used to seeing a sister get up and address a crowd full of especially male leaders in the church, but also male leaders in society. Again, you know, the governors and mayors and whatnot were attending these and, you know, political reporters were reporting on what she had to say. You know, I think part of what she, you know, if you if you read kind of her own writings, she did have a sense, I think, as you know, you, you can find it throughout American kind of the history of American Christianity that some people for maybe a variety of different reasons feel uh, distinctly God calling them into a work that they're not supposed to do <laughs> and uh, a work that the world and the church sometimes tells people that they shouldn't do. And sometimes, again, I, I think we could talk about why it was in her case or why it is in, in other people's cases. They ha they can't help but do that work. And 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 that she is someone who models that, the kind of ways in which, I mean, I think, you know, for a Christian to, to look at, you might say that in some sense that the spirit got a hold of her in a way and, and she couldn't help but do the work that she felt 
she was called to do. And she did it. And, and again, she surprised everyone along the way, but she also did have, and I think this is part of what's interesting about her story. It's interesting about, you know, other kind of prophetic figures that you look at and, and is that when, when people do step out in those ways that you can often find that there will be support for you in surprising places. And she certainly found support at Rosary College, at Cincinnati, and a variety of other places along the way. That is how partly how she was able to do the work that she did. You know, she, she wasn't able to just sort of soar above all the currents, but she, she had to take those kind of courageous steps to, to step out and say, I am equipped to do this work. And she went the further step, especially I think, uh, you know, as she got into her later years of saying, this is a step all women should, should take. All women should, should be educated about these things. And so I think, you know, that's something that she might have been hesitant to say as an 18 or 19 or 20 year old, but that by the time she was kind of at the, the height of her career, she was willing to go out and say that. So that process of how do you discover your vocation and then how do you find the courage to step out beyond what people tell you you should be able to do? There's probably things that his, historians can tell you about that. And then you need the theologians to come in and help you the rest of the way. Fill the gap, right? Yeah. And and I think there I think she was probably also bolstered by by the mission here at River Forest was I was just like in the archives about the origins of the college and um and one of the things that is kind of reiterated in the, in the groundbreaking and the in the ribbon cutting, it, it's kind of a really a, a social justice, social mobility, but also like knowledge and learning is is a part of what we need to do as a, in terms of mission to to raise the Catholic populace, which is largely poor in 1922, you know, yeah. and I, I can see her fitting into that and understanding that. And I, I totally get her position here reading her chapter. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So last question, probably, because we have five minutes left. So uh, did you learn anything that surprised you in the research about the Cincinnati order or gave you new insights into justice? And were there any kind of like surprises or things you take away that you keep with you? In some ways, Sister Vincent's whole career surprised me in the sense that she was doing things that she wasn't supposed to be doing. Um, and that, you know, the histories of Catholic New Deal sort of liberalism don't don't talk about her at all. In fact, there's really been nothing written about her. And it is one of those things where you realize that, you know, in some sense, her story is hiding in plain sight in the archive. But she she was in many ways, extraordinary. And I think, you know, part of part of what I wasn't able to do in this chapter in full, but I, I would hope as people kind of continue this work, you know, is that she's an extraordinary figure. She she was able to do things that other women in her day didn't do nearly as, or, you know, weren't as likely to be able to do. But I, my sense and my conviction, and this is part of where, you know, longer chapters, you know, other books would have to explore this, you know, kind of the broader culture at a place like Cincinnati, the ways in which it nurtured in her both a conviction that she could do the work, um, an interest in these questions that had been kind of simmering at Cincinnati for a long time by the time she professed her vows. And, you know, my sense is that, you know, we know some of this, I talked a little bit about some of this in the chapter, that we know that um, women religious have played roles that they often haven't been credited for. And I think, you know, this was a story hiding in plain sight in the archives that confirm that, but that also beckons and calls for more work to be done on this and, and more exploration. Uh, we need more exploration, again, of kind of the, the Catholic contribution to the story of American capitalism more broadly. We especially need, you know, more, more attention done to, to the work of women like her, uh, both within the Dominican order, but also in other orders. 
who you know have have played a tremendous role in and one way is to bring these teachings to life on the ground that's the thing that i focus on this in this chapter but there's no doubt other ways too so i look forward to seeing kind of the the work that hopefully will continue to develop and sort of challenge the the old narratives around women's roles and stories well i like what you said about like it's hiding in plain sight i mean i think that's been a challenge with the I think Maggie might talk about this next for our next talk, but one of the challenges for elevating the history of women religious has been it's been hard to well, receive the archive, essentially, what's hiding in plain sight. And I think if we can do that in a, in a good way, we can really start to change the narrative in a tangible way that's not fake. It's it's just there, you know, like you were saying. Yeah. And I think that's, that's important for us as historians. And I know it's um, it's a lot of work at times. It yields many kind of, great insights that change the story for us in general. Okay, Rachel, do you want to take over and, and sign us off? Sure. So <clears throat> Heath and Chris, thank you both so much. I mean, what an amazing evening we had. I loved Heath hearing your stories and thinking about, um, you know, like you said, uncovering things that are in plain sight. It gives us a better sense of history, but also this present moment. Um, and thank you, Chris. I mean, some of the questions and the threads that that you pulled out um, and it was a gift, you know, even though we are physically apart, uh, the questions from the community really help connect us. And I can't help but think that, you know, our um, our patroness St. Catherine is smiling. And one of the things is, as you were sharing Heath, I thought, you know, Catherine says so often, you know, we have to speak the truth in a million voices. In some ways, that's a lot of what we do looking at history. I mean, we have to pull these threads out, look at these stories um, and honor, you know, as you said, the um, the things and the moments that formed people uh, like her. So I, I really feel it was such a privilege tonight for this St. Catherine lecture to, um, to host you, Heath, and to think about history and, you know, to, um, to talk with you, Chris. And and as Chris said, um, you know, we have another event next week with Maggie McGinnis. Um, we'll highlight another chapter. Um, so in some ways, it's sort of, you know, we're showing you these facets of the book, facets of the story. Please, you know, purchase the book. And in some ways, too, I think there's a moment where we can all think about the response to the book. So we may see some new literature and new insight coming. Um, so good evening, everyone. Um, thank you for being with us. And I hope you all enjoy spring in whatever part of the country you're in as it begins. Um, so good night and thank you. The schedule for live Arts and Minds programs can be found online at events.dom.edu. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to the production team of Samantha Barr and Patrick Serrano. Theme music is 10 Days Sailing by El Rey Music. Closing music, so proudly Dominican, composed and played by Sue Kaczynski. The views and opinions of the speakers in the podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Dominican University. A wise Dominican sister once said, The search for wisdom, for love, for truth, is strenuous and unending. It takes good companions to persevere in it. Thank you for joining us.